Amen, and thank you for that, Marion. Uh, so take out your Bibles, if you will, and follow along with me in Romans 5. Beginning at chapter 12, this is indeed a dense passage. It is theologically rich, and it will take some effort to track along with it. But thankfully, we'll be focusing on but one of the many facets found in, in this passage. Hear now the Word of God. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification." For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Our gracious and merciful Father in heaven, we come before your face and before your word, ascribing all glory, wisdom, might, and honor, for you alone are God. You created us and not we ourselves. You established the stars in their courses and created the rules of physics that we seek to discover. In Adam, our understanding is fallen, but in Christ you make all things new. We confess that we are awash in worldly thinking and worldly wisdom such that we don't even know how affected we are. Wash us clean, we pray, by the water of your word, so that we might be able to more clearly apprehend truth, even those things which are difficult and contrary to our bent and damaged reasoning. Grant us faith to trust in that which you have revealed, and humility to yield where we need to be corrected. Increase our longing to be more like Christ our Savior, for we come before you in his mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we come to this, as we continue anyway in this short series considering the covenant life that we live, we must remind ourselves that this is a life that is all of God and it is all good. There are bad things that happen. And there are difficult situations to be sure. But the battle we are called to fight is not one primarily concerned with the hard hearts of others or the hard providences that come our way, 
but with our own hard hearts. To paraphrase Oliver Hazard Perry, we have found the enemy and he is us. And so in this message, I want us to see and understand the critical importance of covenant and also the importance of federal or representative headship as revealed in our text from Romans 5 here. But then I want us to take this understanding of covenant and see what God has revealed to us in the blessings of this federal headship, in the covenant of marriage, and in the family. And next week, Lord willing, we will spend much of the time exploring particular applications of these principles and truths. So that means today we're going to be talking a lot about principles. And so we'll need to hang on and, and follow along here with me. We're going to focus very precisely and specifically on federal headship and the blessings therein. But in order to fully grasp this, we need to see that God works through covenant and that the Bible's own organizing principle is one of covenant. 19th century Reformed theologian and Princeton professor Charles Hodge said, as covenant is the scriptural mode of representation, it is of great importance that we should be that it should be retained in theology. Our only security for retaining the truths of the Bible is to adhere to the Scriptures as closely as possible in our mode of presenting the doctrines therein revealed. We find covenant in Scripture from cover to cover. And it is helpful to go all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve and understand how it is in our text today, that it teaches, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. It's a familiar passage. We need to dig a little deeper and understand what is going on here. You see, our first parents were seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan. And they sinned in eating the forbidden fruit, and given their sin... God was pleased according to His wise and holy counsel to permit their sinning and having purpose to order it according to His own glory. By this first sin, they fell from their original righteousness in communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of their whole soul and body. And since Adam and Eve were the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. And death and a corrupt nature was conveyed to all their posterity, passing from one generation to the next, down to this very day. We, as their posterity, are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposed to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, and from this original corruption proceed all of our actual sins and transgressions. And the sad fact is that this corruption of nature that we experience during this life remains even in those who are regenerated. And although it's pardoned by Christ, through Christ, and even put to death, yet it is all truly and genuinely sin. And we know from Scripture that every sin 
whether we are referring to original sin or any actual sin since the fall, given that it is a transgression of the righteous law of God, it brings sin upon guilt upon the sinner, and he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and is made subject to that death and all the spiritual, temporal, and eternal miseries that attend that sin. It is a troubling and seemingly hopeless situation that we find ourselves in. In fact, the distance between God and man is so great that we would indeed be hopeless were it not for some voluntary condescension on God's part. And this He has done by way of covenant. The first covenant God made was a covenant of works with, which He made with Adam in which He promised to Adam and his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience, life. But Adam fell and made himself incapable of life by that covenant, and so the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, which we refer to as the covenant of grace, in which He freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him, that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit, and to make them willing and able to believe. We need not be confused as we consider this covenant of grace, which is inaugurated at Genesis 3.15, where God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The covenant of grace then spans the remainder of the Old and New Testaments. And so we understand that this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises and prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, and the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews. But they were all pointing to Christ to come. And so we don't want to minimize or dismiss the importance of this administration because these things were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. Under the Gospel, when Christ, the substance of this promise was made manifest, the ordinances which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, the old and the new, differing in substance, but one and the same under different administrations. Most, maybe, of you have noted that I just quoted and paraphrased chapter 6 and 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this is to remind us that we believe, although subordinate to the Word, it is a faithful expression of the system of doctrine taught in the Word of God. We would do well to review and study our confession more frequently. 
Clearly, the confession teaches the importance of the covenant in Scripture, as do the shorter and larger catechisms of the church. Larger catechism question 31. With whom was the covenant of grace made? Answer. The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. Apart from an understanding of the representative nature of covenant, we don't have any understanding of the fall and original sin and how it is we all sin and fell in Adam. Apart from an understanding of the representative or federal nature of covenant, we don't have any way to begin to comprehend how it is that Christ's death was able to atone for our sins. And how it is that if Christ isn't risen, then our faith is in vain. And how it is that for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. While covenant's most direct impact is in the doctrine of salvation, it extends far beyond this. For example, the economic doctrine of the Trinity is described in classic covenant theology in terms of an eternal, intra-Trinitarian covenant, commonly called the Pactum Salutis, or the covenant of redemption. The Scriptures themselves can be seen as having the form of a binding covenant document so that in Revelation 22, verses 17 through 19, we read, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, If any man shall add unto these things... God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Life or death. Blessings or curses. Covenant promises. And we don't have time here to speak of the doctrines of the person and work of Christ, the church, and the sacraments, which were all addressed within the biblical context and understanding of covenant. So we see that covenant is the key hermeneutic or, or interpretive lens through which, if you will, through which we see much of Scripture. It is Scripture's own revelation of how it is to be interpreted. Returning to the theme of our text, which is Christ's representative headship, at least that's the facet that we're focusing on this morning. Christ's representative headship is the last Adam. Some might ask, how is it then that Christ could give his life in exchange for ours when no one else can do this for another? What about Psalm 49, where we read, They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches... None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever, that he should still live forever and not see corruption. How can Jesus act as our substitute? And this is where we need to see federal headship 
as a fundamental element of God's dealings with His people in covenant. Which means not just anybody in every situation may assume the role of covenantal head. Adam, as the first man, was the covenantal head of the human race. And as Paul describes Christ's representative headship in uh, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Christ died on our behalf. Therefore, we see that the workings of this exchange is just as in Adam, so also in Christ. In biblical theology, this substitution is the act of a federal representative. And, this is key, Christ's federal headship was established before the foundation of the world in the covenant of redemption. Paul writes to the church, the Philippian church in chapter 2 of that epistle, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As God the Son took on a body of flesh, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the will of God the Father even dying upon a cross. And he did so as the appointed federal head of all God's elect. We also see that the Son is obedient to His head, the Father. Christ fulfilled all the just and righteous requirements of the law, including bearing the just punishment due our sins. He succeeded where Adam failed. And even though Paul draws a clear analogy between the covenant headship of Adam and the covenant headship of Christ, he also reveals the glorious difference as we read verses 16 and 17 from Romans 5. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Justification, abundance of grace, gift of righteousness. How wonderful and marvelous are the blessings of Christ's federal headship for those who are in Him. And so Paul concludes in this passage, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, 
resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Not only does Paul differentiate between Adam's headship and Christ's headship, he also differentiates the sin of Adam and our sin in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The consequences of Adam's sin affected all mankind. Everyone that sins after Adam do not do so as a federal representative in that same sense. And so now we shift our focus to husbands and fathers. Federal representation is not limited to just these two cases of Adam and of Christ. We see this federal headship elsewhere in Scripture. And this headship is attached to covenantal relationships. And so we turn our attention now to those specific relationships, the covenant of marriage, and the relationship between a husband and wife, and also between fathers and their children. We live in confused times, so let me state clearly that marriage and family are not established by custom or by legislative action of the state. It is not subject to the ever-changing whims of sinful man or his sinful desire. God, as Creator, has built into the world how families are to be established and given us the definition of and pattern for marriage. Consider Genesis 2. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And Jesus further establishes this in Matthew 19. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that which made that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. God created us male and female, and marriage is the covenant union of one man and one woman. May get arrested someday for saying that. And we should not be surprised that within that covenant relationship we find federal headship. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. We've already established Christ's federal headship and the headship of God and Christ's obedience to the Father's will. And right in the midst of these two, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, places the headship of the man. Unless we be confused and conclude that every single man is the head of every single woman, we have Ephesians 5 to bring clarity. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Without a covenantal relationship, there is no federal headship. 
Therefore, there is no federal headship between an arbitrary man and an arbitrary woman. As husbands are the head of the wife, so fathers are the federal heads of their families. Consider the passage that we read earlier from Numbers 30. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow, and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. But if her father disallow her in the day that he heareth, not any of her vows, or of her bonds wherewith she hath bound herself, shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. Moses is speaking here the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Vows are important and not to be taken lightly. They are binding, yet in his role as representative head of his daughter, a father may disallow or annul a vow that he hears his daughters make and do so with the full assurance of God's forgiveness. We don't apply texts like this flatly. We do so in wisdom. But the truth is right there before us, and it is a pattern that somewhere within us, rebellion stirs up. Or consider this passage from Job chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It might be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Let's remember that the book of Job opens with, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And the Lord also spoke of him, saying, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? So what is going on in this passage with the perfect and upright man Job? Job, who was blessed by a large family, seven sons and three daughters. And Job rose up early in the morning, and after his children had feasted, he offered sacrifices for each of them, saying, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And the text adds, Thus did Job continually. Even though there was no particular sin of the sons given, Job offered burnt offerings according to their number because they may have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Job, in his role as father, is fulfilling his duty as federal head of the family. And in doing this, and as is described by God, he's described by God as a perfect and upright man that fears God. So as we begin to consider these principles, I think it would be good to start by acknowledging that most everything in our culture today is either in opposition to this concept of federal headship and covenantal thinking, and that the responsibilities they bring 
It's in opposition to those responsibilities as well. Or at the very least, it's moving rapidly away from this way of thinking, this way of seeing federal representation. We are formed and shaped in a culture that idolizes and promotes the individual and autonomy. We are trained, as it were, to be selfish consumers of everything and everyone around us and to think in ways that promote an entitlement mentality. Broadly speaking, we as a culture have bought into the lie of the enemy to the extent that we actually believe, speaking about the culture broadly now, we actually believe that we get to specify for ourselves, identify as some heretofore unheard of gender, or change our personal pronoun, or redefine marriage. And attendant to this individualistic, selfish perspective is an overt rejection of the willingness to accept responsibility. Nothing we do or experience, it would seem, is due to our weakness of character or moral failure or our own foolishness. There are always exits, or so it seems. Something or someone external to us upon which we are eager and ready to place the blame. Not only is it not my fault that I dropped the ball because the sun was in my eyes, it's also not my fault that I am overweight because there's this industrial food complex and and their nefarious schemes that are working against me. We have long had this legal precedent that establishes the notion of not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. And it argues that a defendant was insane during the commission of a crime, but later regained their sanity after the criminal act was carried out. How long will it be, therefore, before there is no crime so heinous, nor any perverse act so evil that it may be excused? or even required to be embraced because of some genetic or environmental factor. But be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. People of God, at God's right hand, there are blessings evermore. And let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. We shall reap if we harvest from God's holy word. And we shall be able to see clearly and think straightly and think rightly. We have to know that the evil that lurks in our own hearts, and we, have to, and we can only do this by shining the light of God's truth on them. There are almost an unlimited number of ways that we can and do fall short of God's perfect plan. There are broken marriages and broken homes. There are weak men who abandon their headship responsibilities and fail to love their wives and, set a, and they fail to set a godly example before their children. There are rebellious women and children who don't know the blessings of submission, respect, and honor. And these are just some of the things I hope to address in next week's message. But for now, I want to to 
take us to what I found to be a beautiful example. Last week, I asked you to think and imagine about what a happy household looks like. Did you do that? I know some of you did. I enjoyed the conversations that came from that. But I want to close this week with a picture of a happy household that John Piper shared regarding his mother's submissive role in relationship to his father, in illustrating that it was not owing to any lesser competencies on her part, but rather it was owing to the God-given nature of manhood and womanhood and how they are designed in marriage to display the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. So bear with me as I read John Piper's own words. Pastor John writes, I grew up in a home where my father was away for about two-thirds of each year. He was an evangelist. He held about 25 crusades each year, ranging in length from one to three weeks. He would leave on Saturday, be gone for one to three weeks, and come home on Monday afternoon. I went to the Greenville airport hundreds of times, and some of the sweetest memories of my childhood are the smile of my father's face as he came out of the plane and down the steps and almost ran across the runway to hug me and kiss me. No skyways in those days. Dads, stepping out of John's words, smile at your children. Run and embrace them. Back to the quote. This meant that my sister and I were reared and trained mostly by my mother. She taught me almost everything practical that I know. She taught me how to cut the grass without skippers and to keep a checkbook and ride a bike and drive a car and make notes for a speech and set the table with the fork in the right place and make pancakes. Notice when the bubbles form on the edge. She paid the bills, handled repairs, cleaned house, cooked meals, helped me with my homework, took us to church, led us in devotions. She was superintendent of the intermediate department at church, head of the community garden club, and tireless doer of good for others. She was incredibly strong in her loneliness. The early 60s were the days in Greenville, South Carolina, when civil rights were in the air. The church took a vote one Wednesday night on a resolution not to allow black people to worship in the church. When the vote was taken, she stood, as I recall, entirely alone in opposition. And when my sister was married in the church in 1963 and one of the ushers tried to seat some black friends of our family, all alone in the balcony, my mother indignantly marched out of the sanctuary and sat them herself on the main floor with everyone else. I have never known anyone quite like Ruth Piper. She seemed to me omnicompetent and overflowing with love and energy. But here's my point. When my father came home, my mother had the extraordinary ability and biblical, biblical wisdom 
and humility to honor him as head of the home. She was, in the best sense of the word, submissive to him. It was an amazing thing to watch week after week as my father came and went. He went, and my mother ruled the whole house with a firm and competent and loving hand. And he came, and my mother deferred to his headship. Now that he was home, he is the one who prayed at the meals. Now it was he that led in devotions. Now it was he that drove us to worship and watched over us in the pew and answered our questions. My fear of disobedience shifted from my mother's wrath to my father's, for there too he took the lead. But I never heard my father attack my mother or put her down in any way. They sang together, laughed together, and put their heads together to bring each other up to date on the state of the family. It was a gift of God that I could never begin to pay for or earn. And here is what I learned. A biblical truth before I knew it was in the Bible. There is no correlation between submission and incompetence. There is such a thing as masculine leadership that does not demean a wife. There is such thing as submission that is not weak or mindless or manipulative. It never entered my mind until I began to hear feminist rhetoric in the late 60s that this beautiful design in my home was somehow owing to anyone's inferiority. It wasn't. It was owing to this. My mother and my father put their hope in God and believed that obedience to His Word would create the best of all families. And it did. So I exhort you with all my heart, consider these things with great seriousness, and do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. End quote. And to that exhortation, I add my amen. Our merciful and glorious Father in heaven, we are thankful that in Christ, our head, we are joined with the people of God for eternity. We are thankful for the truth of your word, which opens the eyes of our blindness. And we are thankful for the examples of godly living you place in our midst and for the stories of the faithful in Christ that come to us. Though we never knew them personally, yet we are encouraged to come alongside them and walk in the old paths wherein is the good way and find rest for our souls. Grant us, O Lord, rest in Christ and comfort, knowing that in Him we are complete and accepted by You. For this we ask in His name. Amen.